And imagine that they would have uh, sat down just like you guys would have been uh, are sitting down now, but only they're on the side of a mountain, uh, on a big grassy patch. There are men, 5,000 strong, and if you include the women and children, some people say probably up to 20,000 people were there. It's springtime and there's hay fever, tissues everywhere, no, there's no tissues back then. Tissues, uh, hay fever, sniffling noses, bees, wildflowers. And Jesus is standing on a ledge, looking over this crowd. It's Passover time. They've all come and followed him because of all the signs that he's done. And they're expectantly waiting and looking at him. It's dusty, it's noisy, and they're hungry. And Jesus looks out to this crowd and he motions to one of his disciples. It's Philip. And he whispers something into his ear, something we can't hear. But by his reaction, we know it's something incredible. Another of his disciples comes along. And this time it's with a, a little child. And in his hand is a basket. Everyone's wondering, what's in this? What's in it? Bread. Barley bread. Five flat pieces. And fish, too. Two small ones. Now they're waving at it and dangling it in front of it. Two small fish and five pieces of bread. Was he going to feed this crowd with just bread and fish? How could five pieces of bread and two small fish feed this many people? Well, he takes what he's got, gives thanks, and begins to break them into pieces. He breaks and he gives. Breaks and gives, breaks and gives. This rhythmic breaking and giving, it gains pace. And soon, the whole crowd would have bread and fish in their hands. Everyone would have enough. More than enough. Twelve basketfuls enough. Everyone is holding their bellies and they're wondering, what just happened? Someone pipes up in the back. Prophet! Another says, It's the prophet! And a third says, Yes, the prophet who's to come into the world. And as this rumor spreads across the crowd like fire in a dry paddock, the people call out, Yeshua, the prophet! And as this chant slowly gains in intensity and in volume, it engulfs Jesus. These voices are rising and men are reaching out, hoping to grab him and lift him up as their king. But Jesus, he pulls back. He withdraws higher and higher up into the mountainside and disappears. I wonder if you've ever had to deal with a hangry person. Yes, hangry. I said the word hangry. It's a combination of hunger, hang hungry and angry. It's that sense of irritation, frustration, anxiety you might be having when you have no food, when you're hankering for food. And everybody at one time or another probably has experienced hangriness. I can tell you for a fact that around 12 p.m. and 6 p.m. for myself, I regularly experience a bout of hangriness. I get snappy, I want things done quickly so that I can go out on my break. I'm thinking, my mind is full of cravings for different kinds of food. And at dinner, I'm seated looking 
hangrily in my food. Why is it so hot? I can't eat it. Why is it so cold? I can't taste this. Why can't everyone just stop talking? I'm wanting to eat my food. Now, after three children, I've also become convinced that hangriness is a human trait from birth. It's congenital. How do you know that a baby needs milk? Do they come up and tug at your shirt sleeve? Do they ask, Mom, Dad, can I have some milk, please? No. One moment, they're an angel, and the next, red-faced, like a tomato, about to explode, hangry. The only thing that will placate them is milk. Now, we talked about food, but can we be hangry for other kinds of things? What about something you desired for a, for a long, long time, like a new car or, or some fashion accessory or a new device? Your appetite's been stoked over months with this advertisement build-up across your screens, these emails that keep coming, buy this, buy that, and then one email kills it all, tax bill, instant hangriness. You're irritated because your appetite for what you want cannot be satisfied. You're hangry about your material positions. And what about wanting to belong to a community group or, or a work team or, or a sports team? And something is missing. It might be time, it might be the relationships. Something's just not quite working out. You don't seem to be able to connect with anyone there. You experience loneliness. You're anxious. And in the midst of that, you start getting irritated. You're, you're hangry about your relationships. And this morning's passage is about, this morning, this afternoon's passage, is about hunger and how Jesus fills it. But sometimes we're so focused on our sensation of hunger and desire for something that we, we lose sight of what is actually needed to fulfill it. And this chapter begins with a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men and their families. It begins with physical hunger that is satisfied physically. But very quickly it turns into hunger for, for political solution. The crowd, they, they witness this wonderful and amazing miracle and they want to take Jesus by force and make him their king. They're hoping that it end Roman occupation in their home. And in turn, it turns out, it widens out to a much bigger hunger. A hunger for their historical destiny as the people of God to be fulfilled. You see, as Jesus performed this miracle feeding, their minds would have gone into overdrive. And they're thinking, and this is what I think they would have been thinking. He is a miracle worker who, in just a short period of time, has publicly performed these amazing signs all of them witnessing to his divine power. And that's why they call him the prophet. And this sign, the feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish, surely this would have reminded them of an ancient story. The story of how one of the greatest leaders, Moses, prayed to God and brought manna, bread from heaven, to feed the nation of Israel in the wilderness. It would remind them of the exodus, and the Passover, which is part of God's rescue from Egypt. And here was Jesus preaching at a mountainside around the time of Passover. 
He's distributing bread. And there are 12 baskets left over. And would it be too much to imagine, they would think, hoping that these 12 baskets may just represent the 12 tribes of Israel? And would it be just too much to hope, perhaps this man Jesus would lead Israel into a second exodus and reclaim a national destiny as God's people again? But Jesus doesn't want any of that. He, he defies the crowd. He, he defies the will, brave man, of a hungry and angry crowd. He does so for a reason. Jesus wants to reorient their spiritual appetites. And this afternoon, he wants to reorient ours so that we hunger for him, the true bread of life. Now, as we look at John 6 today, I want to look at with you at a portrait of Jesus as the bread of life that satisfies our hunger. And we, as we're moving through this passage, we'll see that Jesus speaks, as it were, as if he were kneading dough. We'll see that he just begins with a few basic elements. It's like flour, water, and yeast, and he's working the dough over and over and over again until it's ready for baking, yet always with the same basic truths, same basic elements. Bread and food, belief, eternal life, and heaven. And as he debates with the crowd, Jesus takes, raises the stakes each time with the same truths about himself, but he provokes the crowd and stokes their anger. He calls them and us to hunger for the right thing. And so John 6 tells us that because Jesus is the bread of life from heaven, we must feed on him. First, we must hunger for food that lasts. Second, we must hunger for food that gives life. Third, we must hunger for food from heaven. And finally, we must hunger for food that is real food for our souls. And first, because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for food that lasts. Now, they find him this crowd on the other side of the sea from where he had performed this sign. And they can't figure out why and how he got there because there was only one boat when he performed the sign, but now he's on the other side. How did he get there? And that's why they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And why are they seeking him? What are they hungry for? And Jesus knows their hearts. He says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were looking for Jesus because they had received bread, a free dinner, and they wanted to see if they could get more. And the physical hunger was satisfied, and they wanted to see the sign again and again. They weren't drawn to him because of the signs he performed, revealing who he was, this divine power, this divine character. No, they were overtaken by their concerns for an earthly meal. And so he tells them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And there's food that spoils, and there is food that endures. I don't know if you've ever left some groceries, you're sitting on a kitchen bench for about a week or two, you just forgot about them. And to your amazement, when you go back to it, and you look at it, it looks, smells, and tastes great. I'm not sure if that really happens anymore. But if it did, you'd be surprised, you'd be suspicious, in fact. 
Because in our day and age, when we see something sitting on a kitchen bench for a week or two, and it still looks and smells great, number one bet is there's chemicals and preservatives in it. I'm not going back to that grocery store. In the ancient days, fresh food was hard to come by. Without refrigeration, food would have gone off pretty quickly. And anything that wasn't eaten within a day or two would have to be salted or pickled in some way. And Jesus reminds them here of the temporary nature of things. Don't look for food which lasts for a moment. Look for food which lasts forever. And it should also probe a question into our hearts. Because all too often the things we seek keep their value for just a short period of time. And we live in a consumable culture. There's fast food, fast fashion, fast jobs. And living in the fast lane means taking a very short view of life. And on deeper matters like friendships, intimate partners, our world has become mastered by what is, is practical and what is suitable to me now. The tyranny of the now has overtaken our mindset on everything. Jesus restores a sense of eternity. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. There's a character to something which lasts forever, something untouched and unaffected by time. And it's this which Jesus offers, not bread which lasts for a meal. But what's more, this food is given with authority. Verse 27 says, it's food which the Son of Man will give you, for on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Ultimately, God has given his authority to the Son, Jesus himself, to distribute this food. And when you pull out a banknote from your pocket and take a look at what makes it legal tender, what makes $20 worth $20, the signatures of the governor of the Reserve Bank and the Secretary of the Treasury are on there. They vouch for the authority, for the purchasing power of that $20. And in the same way, the Son of Man is authorized by the Father to give food which endures to eternal life. So because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for the food he gives, food that lasts. This is food that he gives with the authority of God the Father and is of great value. It's of great value because it lasts forever. And secondly, it's of great value because it's a gift of life. And it's to this second point that we go to now. Because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for food that gives life. And latching on to the great value of eternal life, the crowd asks the question, well, what must we do to do the work God requires? It's a question which, which really focuses on the nature of what Jesus is actually offering. It must be something of great worth because death, the opposite of life, is the great equalizer. The great and small, the rich and poor, the righteous and the evil all succumb to death. And so life is of great value. And it's for this reason that Christians traditionally have in all kinds of circumstances defended the sanctity of life. Be it in seeking freedom from slavery, dignity for all human life, or in protecting the life of the unborn. Christ followers have seen the life breath of God in those made in his image. And so we need to ask ourselves as we encounter the one who comes with life-giving food, 
What are we to do? How do we get this bread? And like the crowd, we need to ask, what is it that God requires? Whereas the crowd asks about which many kind of works God requires, Jesus simply responds that God requires one work. And it's for them to believe in the one he has sent. The one thing that God requires is belief in Jesus. It may seem incredible that such a precious gift as eternal life is to be had by believing. But that's the one condition that's required. Eternal life is not found in what the Christian church requires people to do. It's not what in, in what Judaism or Buddhism or any other religion requires you to do. It's not in what any food trend or lifestyle guru has mandated for life. It's in what God has set as the condition. And this afternoon, the passage tells us that if you believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent, you have access to eternal life. And if you do not, you do not have access to eternal life. And so maybe you're wondering along with me, why does God make belief the one condition? Why not the amount of good works or or karma or, or spirituality as measures? Why is belief... And this goes to the heart of what Judaism and many other religions are about. It's about the condition of oneself that determines who deserves to have a good life and who doesn't. We'll get a glimpse of this when we go back to the Jews' next question. They say, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, why should we believe you? The one to be believed in needs to work for their credibility. Moses was credible because he delivered manna to their forefathers in the wilderness. In fact, as we already mentioned earlier, the people revere Moses. And this feeding incident would have sparked off associations with that episode in Exodus 16 manna in the wilderness. That very episode when the people of Israel grumbled against God, began to complain against his leaders, Moses and Aaron, and shaking their fists at God, they vented their anger at being left hungry and thirsty in the desert. And yet in the face of this mutiny, despite rescuing them from slavery, God doesn't just let them die in the desert. God sends down bread from heaven to feed them. And the irony, of course, is that's exactly what Jesus has just done. He's given them bread to eat. And if Moses calling down manna from heaven was was a confirmation of God with the people of Israel in the wilderness, then what Jesus does with bread and fish was an awesome display of his divine power. They're meant to recognize him as a heavenly figure in their midst, they're meant to see Jesus' divine ability to provide for their life. But they don't get it. And they had it wrong when they looked to Moses as the one who provided the sign of manna. They gave glory and honor to Moses rather than God. And so Jesus reorients them away from this. He redirects them to see that it's God the Father who gives all things. To think otherwise was offensive to God. Verse 32, he says, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses 
who has given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And even though we don't offend God in the same way, I, I wonder how much you and I long for the true bread from heaven. We probably think to ourselves that the answer to that question is found in how much we're willing to give up for it. And this morning, Jesus' words force us, force us to grapple with the fact that the bread of heaven costs us nothing. But it's not for everyone. You can't buy it with your money. You can't earn it with your time or material goods or effort or even sincerity. It's free of charge, offered to everyone. And yet it's only received because God wills that you believe in Jesus. It's a very strange situation for us in a very consumer society. We see something we like. We say we've got the money to buy it. We put down the money and we get it. Yeah, on the one hand, Jesus says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But on the other hand, it's only because of the Father's will that people even come to Jesus. Verse 37 says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So what's Jesus talking about here? What we have here is, is Jesus showing that what God requires and what God wills comes together to secure eternal life for the one who believes. These two, belief in Jesus and the assurance of God's will and securing that belief, they're entwined together to absolutely, rock-solidly secure eternal life for the one who believes. And like two sides of a coin, the one who believes in Jesus will receive eternal life. And it is God's own sovereign, powerful, unfailing will that the one who believes in Jesus will never be lost to him. This afternoon, if you are a believer in Jesus, this truth should be of immeasurable comfort and hope to us. It's great assurance because we don't choose to be believers we are believers by God's choice. There's no way we can muck up if we believe in Jesus because it's God's will that those who believe in him will be in his secure possession forever. And so all that's left for us to ask for is the gift of belief. Because God simply wants us to believe in Jesus, we must ask for the kind of hunger that leads us to Jesus, the bread of life. And for all who ask, believing, he is gracious to give. Next, Jesus is the bread of life. We must hunger for heavenly food. And of course, the Jews continued, just like their ancestors, to grumble. They don't see how Jesus could have come down from heaven. They say, how did this man who was the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, we know that his parents, how could it be that he came from heaven? And in verses 48 to 50, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Now in contrast to miraculous manna, which the Jewish ancestors ate and still died, this Jesus, who calls himself bread from heaven, he gives life. 
eternal life. Over the last year, making bread has become a little bit of a fascination for me. I found it absolutely amazing that by putting in some rudimentary ingredients, flour, water, and yeast together, you can watch the entire process of this glutinous mass. My apologies to those who are gluten-free here. I found it amazing watching this mass rise and bubble. The dough is, in a very real sense, alive. And there's yeast activated by warm water, and it's a live culture, which gives unique taste and flavor to the bread. And if you don't use powdered yeast from a supermarket, but wild yeast to make your dough starter, here's where it does get interesting. Wiki says, The flavor and nature of a given sourdough has been claimed to depend strongly on the location. The famous San Francisco sourdough grows only in and near the city of San Francisco. If taken elsewhere, local yeasts and bacteria will soon grow, and in a few months, the cultures will no longer be the same. And so, in fact, if I were to create a sourdough starter, which I don't have, it, it'd be composed of wild yeast from my local environment. It'd be unique to my location. And so it is in this imagery about bread from heaven. And bread on earth has the character and flavor of death and decay. It's food that spoils. Leave a home-baked loaf out for more than two or three days and it grows stale. Beyond that, mold begins to dot the bread. But bread from heaven has the character of life. Jesus exhorts the crowd to seek food, bread, that endures to eternal life. It contains something out of this world. It's heavenly. It's divine. It's from the creator God himself. The one who gives life. And yet again, Jesus ratchets it up a notch. Look at verse 51 now. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's a statement intended to provoke. And depending on how you hear the statement, you'll come to very different conclusions. On the one hand, for those who've come to Jesus because God has drawn them in to believing him, They'd understand that when Jesus speaks of eating his flesh, it's by believing in him. But for those who have not learned this, they would maintain a physical, earthly reality to Jesus' words about flesh and blood. And Jesus takes this statement about himself, that he's the bread of life, and then he intensifies it, saying that the bread is his flesh. And this statement produces a division. It's a division between those who would believe and those who wouldn't. Between those who are among the dead and those who are among those who live. Between those who are of the earth and those who are of heaven. These words divide and turn away. And are starting from a crowd of about 5,000 eager men who are ready to take up arms and serve him as their king. By the end of this episode, Jesus seems to have only got a handful perhaps a few more than the 12 faithful disciples who stick with him. People are turned away from him because of the extremes to which he has taken this metaphor. And yet he says that the bread of life that would be given to those who believe would be his flesh. And so this is where we need to come to grips with what Jesus is saying to us personally. Jesus says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. What does it mean? And for that, I think we need to be reminded that this entire episode happens near that time of, of Passover. 
John has been careful to speak of this as he describes the feeding miracle. In the Passover, a lamb was slaughtered, eaten with bitter herbs, to commemorate the way in which God, God's angel of death passed over homes of those believing Israelites in Egypt. The Israelites would have painted their doorways as instructed with the blood of the lamb. And what's the point? Well, the point is that even as God executes judgment on those who rebel against him and disbelieve him, he still provides a way for those who believe in him to live. The Passover lamb would be the way through which believing Israel would remember that God makes a way to save that nation. By taking the life of a sacrificed lamb in the place of sinners who deserve death. And now when we read John chapter 1, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus declares that he is the bread of life and that his flesh is the bread that must be eaten for eternal life, he's showing them ahead of time that his life would be taken and given like a Passover lamb. It'd be taken to be eaten in belief so that the sin of the world would be taken away and life would be given. And just like the Passover lamb, Jesus would give his flesh as a sacrifice so that men and women would have life. And that takes us to the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The centerpiece of the Christian faith is the love of God demonstrated on the cross of Christ. It's there that Jesus gave his physical body and died a physical death to bring about, as the ultimate Passover lamb, spiritual life to those condemned to spiritual death. And this afternoon, we must hunger for heavenly food. We must hunger for food that when we eat it, gives us life. And that food is the bread of life, and that bread is the flesh of Jesus. When he was nailed to the cross, his flesh was given. And you know what? It was to satisfy the hangriness of God. Not that God is irritated by hunger, but God who is so desirous, so hungry in reaching out in love to sinners destined for death, who have angered him by going their own way. This God nailed his own son to the cross that whoever would look upon him and believe in him would have eternal life and not die. So because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for heavenly food that God has provided to give us true life. And finally, because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for real food. And the moment Jesus says, this bread is my flesh, an argument breaks out. And Jesus reaffirms his statement, Verses 54 to 55, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And then he adds another variation in verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. If we put everything together that Jesus has said so far, we'll see that Jesus is the bread that is from heaven who gives eternal life to all who eat of him. And But now this final statement adds an extra dimension, and that dimension is of remaining in him. Jesus promises to be in the one who believes, and in the same way, 
the one who believes is in Jesus. It's for the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood. And in both these images, Jesus is referring to how his sacrifice would be given. It would be given in the offering of his body and the shedding of his blood. In other words, it would be in his death and in believing this that you find real food. Uh, sometimes when I'm at home, I put out some afternoon tea at the t- dinner table. My youngest son comes to me, Dad, that's not proper food. And what he means, of course, is that it's not really dinner. It's not a true meal. It's not a nourishing meal. He knows enough to say that. That's because I've said it so much to him. (laughs) Jesus says that if we believe in him, in his death as bearing the penalty for our sin, we would remain in him. In a very deep sense, that's what being Christian is about, isn't it? Following Jesus in every circumstance. But the challenge is, how do you follow Jesus when it hurts? How do we follow Jesus when we can't see or enjoy the reality of the power of eternal undecaying life right now. There are people hurting inside and outside of this church today, struggling with illness, cancer, disability. There are people who have trauma, emotional traumas, wounds and scars that are still too raw to touch. And what about those of us who serve in the church? Has ministry taken a toll on you? Even in the things that we might do in the service of God, do we feel life draining from us? There are those of us who are not experiencing the power of life eternal. And how does that make the Christian life plausible? How does that make the Christian life credible? How do we follow Jesus to the cross where he'd be persecuted and die? Jesus says we're to have real food and it's by believing in his death. That's because Jesus' life is one of humiliation and ultimately glorification. He came down from heaven. He suffered on earth. He died as a common criminal on a cross. And he was raised by God the Father, who accepted his sacrifice of obedience and exalted him to the place of glory. This is the trajectory of the Christian life. And we who profess to be Christians live it by being in Jesus. And so we live expecting suffering and humiliation, but anticipating glory and exaltation. We do so by being united in our whole being to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Throughout the centuries since Jesus died and rose again, One of the most tangible ways of this union with Jesus that follows Christ enjoys in celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there are many ways that we enjoy connection with Jesus. It might be reading his word by praying, by worshipping together. But this passage and speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood points in some way to the idea of being joined to Jesus by believing as we eat together in the Lord's Supper. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a statement that caused great controversy in the day. Because drinking blood for the Jews was strictly prohibited. And eating flesh, someone's flesh, and drinking someone's blood for the Romans would have been barbaric. 
And this way of speaking, this metaphor, celebrating our union with him and what we do is, is what we do whenever we have communion together. In the moments of Holy Communion, we get to share as a Christian community what is at the heart of the Christian life. To remain in Jesus and have Jesus in us. It's the vital, life-giving connection that a Christian needs to be spiritually alive. And so as we finish, let me ask you, how are you enjoying union with Christ in eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Not just at the Lord's Supper, but... In other ways, some of us might say we don't need any reminders to keep us believing. But I want to ask you, do we need to reset how we think about the way we look at God's word, the way we pray to him, the way we worship with him, and rediscover what it means to to be united with Christ in all of life? What a shame it would be if we disregard any of these ways God has given to us and prepared for us to help us live in him how much we would deprive ourselves because we need constant sustenance. Is there a moment when we don't need Christ? No. Is there a moment when we don't need to remain in him and him in us? No. And so the antidote to this is to pray for a renewed hunger. We need to pray that because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for real food. As we close... Verse 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. People are offended. They're disgusted. They're repulsed by his teaching. And many turned away. And yet when Jesus asked the twelve, You do not want to leave too, do you? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Today, if Jesus asks you, you do not want to leave too, do you? What will you say? But before you answer, I want to paint for you one last time that story that John begins in this chapter to give you a vision for what is to come. Jesus feeding the 5,000 reshapes how we see Exodus 16 and the giving of the manna. In the wilderness of Exodus 16, manna was a temporary sustenance. But in John 6... Jesus promises himself as the true manna that lasts forever. Back then, manna would be provided until they got into the promised land. And in John 6, it would be real food and the promise of life eternal and the hope of resurrection. Whereas the ancestors ate manna and died, Jesus promises heavenly life to all who believe in him and feed upon him. And so because of where we are historically, in the timeline of Christ Jesus coming, dying, and being resurrected. We can stand and look back at these words of Jesus and take hope in them as we look forward. We can trust in them as words that bring eternal life, and we can find in them sustenance for each day until he returns.